children, I usually... When you're up here, I ask you to tell me something, or I, I usually talk to you in a bit of a certain way. And this time, children, I'm going to ask your parents to tattle on you, okay? I'm going to ask your parents to tattle on you. Now, maybe... I. I'm, so moms and dads, lift your hands in the air if this is true of your child. How many children here have talked a tough game that they are not afraid of the dark? Oh, no, I don't need a nightlight. I don't need anything. Sp- I, I'm not afraid of the I'm not afraid of the dark. But comes bedtime. The door shuts. Now it's dark. And suddenly, maybe you weren't as brave as you said you were. Moms and dads, how many of you have had children like this? Raise your hands. Only one? (laughs) Only one. Oh, I see another one. None of the rest. Oh, well, children, your parents did not tattle on you. Your parents did not tattle on you. We have a few children. We have at least one child who is a little afraid of the dark, even though maybe they say they're not. Well, Jesus here is about to encounter the dark. All his life, he's been saying that he's about to do something. He's about to be glorified. He's about to do something that would take upon him the sins of the world that would cleanse us from all of our sins. He's been saying without a doubt that he will be lifted up, that he will be killed by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees by the elders, by, the, by his own people. We're told in the first chapter of this book that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Well, now it's time to see if Jesus really means what he says. His life is about to come to an abrupt end, humanly speaking. And he is going to face it down and we're going to find out just how unafraid he is. But just before this moment that he goes to his death, Jesus stops to pray. This passage in John 17 has been called the High Priestly Prayer. I think that's a good name. Another good title for this prayer might be something like the Prayer of Consecration. Jesus is praying a prayer of consecration before he goes off. Another idea inherent in this prayer is a prayer of transitioning. Jesus has cared for you. He has your face in his mind as he goes to the cross, but he knows that soon he will ascend. And who's to take care of his flock after he leaves this earth? Well, he's entrusting us to God, and there's this active entrusting of us to God. There's a lot going on here in this prayer of John 17. Commentators are agreed that there are three distinct sections of this prayer. We're going to be studying it over the course of two Sundays, so we're going to break it basically in half, even though I'm aware that there's a nice, neat division of three, we're going to divide it in two for our purposes here. We're going to take verses 1 through 13, and next month we're going to take verses 14 through the end of the book, the end of the chapter, rather, verse 26. So we're going to cut it in half, even though it can also be roughly broken into three sections. The high priestly prayer 
the prayer of consecration, whatever you want to call it, is a very challenging passage of Scripture to wrap your mind around. In almost every other passage of Scripture, I feel like past study helps me when I come to that passage again. I've studied, say, Exodus chapter 20 before. And when I go back to study it again, I'm a little further down the road for my previous study. I've studied John 17 many times, and never have I felt that I'm farther down the road than I was before. It is extremely challenging. It is sort of elliptical in John's style. And what makes matters even harder is that all the words are simple and easy to understand. It's the sort of thing that makes you think you should understand it on your first reading. But the farther you go, the more complicated it gets and very quickly becomes a great challenge for any interpreter of Scripture. So my goal over these two sermons is not to exhaustively study John 17. I don't think we could get it all uncovered over a lifetime of preaching. My goal is for us to get a sufficient enough understanding of it that our own prayers are forever changed as we pray for ourselves and as we pray for Fellowship Bible Church. So I hope you'll tackle that with me in the month of February and in the month of March. Let's set the scene here of John 17. It's been said, John's gospel has been called a passion narrative with a detailed, with a detailed introduction. And just to reiterate that, in John chapter 12, verse 1 and following, we find Jesus in the last week of his life. And beginning in John chapter 13, verses 1 and following, we come to the last night of Jesus' life. Now there's, what, 22 chapters in the book of John? I'm 22, 21, 22, let me just check. It's 21 or 22. Pastor Chris knows chapter numbers immediately. That's one of my weaknesses. 21, that's 21. I'll get that next time. There's 21 chapters. And we arrive at the last night of Jesus' life in chapter 13. So almost half the gospel is spent on one day. It's amazing. In John 18, verses 1 and following, the events begin to accelerate. He's arrested. He's betrayed. And we see him shuttled all around Jerusalem as the passion is played out. So, if we put all that together, the Last Supper has been eaten. Judas has been dismissed. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. Jesus has taught them many things. They've had this long supper over several hours. And here's the final prayer of consecration. Just before Jesus leaves that room and his death, the events that lead to his death begin. It's a, it's a moment that's packed with meaning and it cannot be divorced from the timing in Jesus' life. A little context for this prayer, I had you look at John 17, verse 1. When he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and began praying. 
What he said immediately before that is important. Look back at the verse before, verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus has just said that tribulation is certain to come. There's going to be difficulty and challenges. But he's overcome this world, and he will overcome it by what he's about to do on the cross. And so this prayer is born out of encouragement that though tribulation and trial will come, Jesus overcomes it all. And Jesus is here praying for us that we will, in fact, overcome. So here is the Savior who is about to face down death, praying that we would overcome evil forces in this world. And he pauses just before being betrayed to lift up his heart to his Father, and we get to listen in. I have three points for us today. If you'd like to jot them down ahead of time, you can take note. We're praying for triune glory, praying for God's own, and praying for ultimate things. In verses 1 through 13 of this prayer, these are the three primary themes. Praying for triune glory, praying for God's own, and praying for ultimate things. I want us to notice first and foremost that Jesus is praying for triune glory. The prayer, in fact, begins in verse 1. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And right here, the tone is set for the rest of this prayer. Jesus is praying that God would glorify him just as Jesus has glorified the Father throughout his lifetime. In this prayer, Jesus prays about God's glory six different times, at least in the first half of this prayer. You can look here in verse 1. He does it. He prays for that twice. Let's look at verse 4. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. And in verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here, Jesus is saying, I'm about to be killed and lifted up, and then I'll ascend. And when I do, I will shed off this flesh that I've carried about for 33 years. Glorify me with the magnificent splendor that was seen in eternity past. If you want to read about that, you can go to Isaiah 6 and see the king seated high on his throne. The glory of the Lord fills the temple and the angels shout, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. Jesus says right now, My glory is veiled through this flesh, but as soon as I ascend, tear this veil off just like the curtain in the temple will be torn and allow my glory to shine as bright as it ever shone. This is a prayer about glory. What does it mean to glorify? Jesus asks that God would glorify him. He insists that he has glorified the Father. But what does it mean? That's not something we speak of in positive terms. If I were to say to you, um, I was walking around uh, my house um, in all my glory, you would assume that I was doing something obnoxious. So what does it mean to 
glorify somebody in a godly kind of way. Well, it's a really common theme in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the first time we encounter the Greek word and the Greek translation of the Old Testament is in Exodus chapter 34, and it occurs a bunch of times in that passage. I don't remember if it was five or seven times, but a lot. And it says, it's kind of an interesting use. It's instructive for us. Moses went and stood before the Lord. He received the law from the Lord. And when he came off the mountain, his face was, and there's our word. Hebrew says shining. The Greek translation of that is glorified. His face was bright. It shone forth light. And frankly, it terrified the Israelites, and they insisted on covering it up. In Psalm chapter 50, verse 23, that uh, the, the sacrifice, the, the, to make thanksgiving your sacrifice, shines a light on the Lord. It glorifies the Lord. It doesn't make him bigger. It makes our view of him, it makes other people's view of him bigger. People appreciate him more, and when people make thanksgiving their sacrifice, it expands our view of who God is and how good he's been. The word is used in a more secular sense a bunch of times, again, in the book of Esther. To hold somebody in honor, to do something for them that adds to their reputation among others for acts that are already done. This person is good. Let's make it known all the more widely that this person is good. That's what it means to glorify, to honor, to lift up to broadcast how good a person is. In the New Testament, the most common use of this idea of glorify is when people see the miracles, like in Matthew 15, 31, that Jesus was doing. He, he gave blind people sight. He opened deaf people's ears. The mute talked. These are illnesses and diseases that perplex us still today. And the great physician, with a touch or a word or a command, would restore people to wholeness. Disease fled in the face of our Savior. And when people saw it, it says they glorified God. They marveled. How, how can it be that God would give somebody this sort of power? It was marvelous. John, in his gospel, does something very interesting. And if you like to ponder on theological things, let me hand this to you and let you think about it for the week because I think it's a fascinating point. In John's gospel, Jesus never pursues his own glory. Jesus always takes his own glory in a passive sense. It's always passive. Jesus wants God to glorify him. Jesus wants his people to glorify him. But Jesus, in this first descent into earth, veils his glory. He does not seek it. He waits 
until the day that God glorifies him fully and forevermore. He wants God to do the work of his own glorification. This is the definition of humility. Imagine if one of us in here had the ability to heal others with a touch, how quickly that would go to our heads and we would become insufferable, arrogant people. And yet Christ is passively waiting for the Lord to directly intervene and bring him the glory that's due to his name. Jesus prays here, I've glorified you, God. Now will you glorify me? This is a prayer fundamentally about glory. What else is this? Let's move to our second point. This is a prayer for God's own. This is a prayer for God's own. Now, I have to confess, I've never actually noticed this before about John 17, and yet it's there, it leaps off the page at you. This is a prayer about possession. I want you to notice, in just the verses we're going to cover today, look how many times the word given is used. Look at verse, it's actually used 12 times in 13 verses. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that he may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. It's a constant refrain throughout these passages. In verse 6, for example, there's another one. Uh, where the word given, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. It's repeated over and over again. Jesus is talking about what God has given him and what Jesus is giving back to God. It's a possession of something. Something that Jesus rightly owns and has. This possession theme moves forward. The words yours and mine, to be honest with you, I didn't even attempt to count them. It's, it, it's in almost every verb. It's in almost every noun. Yours, mine, mine, yours. There's something that rightly belongs to Jesus. There's something that rightly belongs to God. And Jesus is talking about that possession with his God. Now, the things that Jesus owns are his people, and he's concerned about his people. And this ought to be the greatest um, comfort to us. We tend to think of Jesus' people in the past tense. When Jesus says, I'm, I'm laying down my life for my sheep, who do we think of? We think of people like Peter and James and John. Maybe even we move it forward to the Apostle Paul. But Jesus says, I'm praying, the, I'm praying this not only, this will be for next time we cover this, I'm praying this not only for the people that are hearing this, but for my sheep that will hear it down the road. Let me get, let's get very specific about this. Jesus is thinking about you. You are his. 
and in his omniscience, who can think an infinite number of thoughts simultaneously, when he says, all that you have given me are mine, he has your face in his mind. And he is thinking about going to the cross for you. He has you. You are his. He wants to be known to you personally and intimately. For you are his. And he's concerned about you. And he's concerned for your protection when he leaves this world. And he's got your face on his heart. Even as he's praying these things about what's his. Christ possesses people, it says in verse 6, from eternity past. And he possesses them, verses 2 and 10, unto eternal life. He says, since you have given him authority over all flesh. Now, Jesus says, I, I have authority over everything. But what do I want that authority to be exercised in? To give eternal life to all whom you've given him. The exercise of the authority that you've granted me is to give eternal life to all these people that I have in mind. They're mine. You've given me eternal life to give to them. You've given them to me to give them eternal life. And I grant it. Verse 10, let's look at that verse. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Again, this idea of passive glory. We, Jesus derives glory from us as we realize his ownership of us. We also need to notice that Jesus is praying for our protection and our unity. He's praying for the protection of his own. Let's look at verse 11. Because remember, this is a prayer about possession. It's a prayer about ownership, what's rightly his. He says in verse 11, And I am no longer in the world, but they're in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. If you like to write in your Bible, I would suggest circling that word keep. It's the Greek word tereo, and it refers to guarding. It refers to what keeping care over them. As we move forward in verse 12, he says, When I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them. This is the word um, phuloxo. It's a... It, the, the Greek word for prison is phulake. He has kept you under lock and key, not for the sake of putting you away in a criminal sense, but in the case of guarding you. What do you put in a safe? What do you put under lock and key? Your valuables. That which is precious to you. And Jesus says, when it comes to my own, I have guarded my valuable possessions with my life. And God, I'm praying that you would keep watch and protect and look over. Guard them as a sentinel looks over the camp. 
Watch over them, protect them. Jesus is intimately concerned about the preservation of his own possession. Jesus specifically excludes those who aren't his own. He says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm not praying for the world. The things that he's praying in here are exclusively for the children of God, exclusively for the very people that Jesus has on his heart. He doesn't pray these things for everybody. He's praying for unity, that our oneness would match the unity that's inherent in the Trinity from eternity past. How do we know who belongs to Christ? Again, the idea of possession in this prayer reigns. Those whom Christ possesses hear and keep his word. How do you know if you belong to Christ? Do you hear his word? Do you keep his word? And Jesus withholds comfort from those who want to hear Jesus but don't want to keep his word. Now, there's a vast difference between somebody who tries and fails and somebody who utterly disregards. And if it is your heart to hear and to heed the word of the Lord, then you're his. It's great evidence that you're his. Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for his own. He's praying for that which was given to him from his Father for the glory of God. Jesus is intimately concerned for what is his. And then third, Jesus is praying for ultimate things. There is hardly a word in this prayer. There is not a word in this prayer that is frivolous. There is not a word in this prayer that is dedicated exclusively to earthly things. Jesus is concerned for eternal things, for ultimate things. And here in this final prayer of this Last Supper, he will pray one more time in the book of John, by the way, and we'll get to listen in on that. But in this prayer, facing the darkness to come, he is intensely concerned about ultimate things. Jesus' words are infused with the eternal, eternal life, eternal glory, both past and future. He's concerned for the unity of the local church and the eternal significance that that has. When God's people are at odds with each other, it's at odds with the eternal union that the members of the triune God have possessed. It's of eternal significance when God's people are at temporal odds. Jesus is praying for the protection of his people for time immemorial. He's telling them, I'm I'm praying this for you. And then Jesus is praying over what we're going to call divine imperatives. There's a certain certain, um, Greek structure that's particularly strong. And it, it sticks out 
and it occurs, it happens four times in these 13 verses. You could translate it with a must. This must happen. In order that this must happen. And I have them listed here in verse 1. This divine imperative comes. He says, glorify your son in order that. In order that the son may glorify you. The son is praying that he should glorify, that he must glorify the father. Second, the son is praying. Verse 4, that he should do the work of the father. God has this glory that he's going to glorify him with but it comes through the painful destiny of the cross. I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 11, Jesus is praying that God's people must be one. He says right here, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. And here's our key phrase, that they may, that they must, that they should. It's of divine imperative importance that they be one. I want them to be one. And then last, God is praying that his people should be, must be, it's of huge significance, be filled with joy. Now I saved that word for last because it jumps off the page, doesn't it? Often when we think of praying, we think of kind of a morose attitude. Something that's hard, prayer that's characterized by defeat, and we should always be doing more. When we think of what Jesus is saying, he's talking about tribulations and hard things and trials and keeping us from evil. But here he says, I'm praying that you would keep them, and I'm praying that you would guard them, protect them. I'm praying that they would keep my words. And when we hear keep words, we think, oh, that means I have to get stuff out of my life. It's inherently negative. And he says, I'm praying for these things. So that joy would reign. It's the absolute opposite of what we might expect. We might expect him to say that they would have the courage and the wherewithal to muster strength and overcome. It would certainly be an appropriate prayer. But Jesus is praying for the joyful union of his people. For people who love being around each other. For people whose joy it is to serve one another. To serve Christ. I'm going to break script here for one moment. There are many local churches where... Sunday morning is a brief meeting point of people. You come in without talking to very many people. What's going on in their lives doesn't really affect you. You sing your songs, you listen to your sermon. 
As the closing hymn is sung, you gather your stuff, and when amen is said, out the door you go, unaffected by those around you and not affecting those in your orbit. That is so common, isn't it? That is so common. And Jesus is praying for something better. Jesus is praying for people who are intimately connected and take joy in the presence of God's people. They linger. They don't want to go home. Their friends are here. Their family is here. They're together for Christ's sake. Where else would we rather be? And if you can capture that, my friends, that is joy. It's joy. I have a couple examples. We're encouraging you in your devotional time to pray like this. So I have a couple examples. I have three of them. I'm going to read them almost without comment. But if you're saying to yourself, how do I transform John 17 verses 1 through 13 into my own praying? Well, let me give a couple examples. Maybe these will be helpful to you. Maybe they won't be. But here goes. Here's example number one. Glorify your son. We could pray this way for each other starting tomorrow. Heavenly Father, glorify your son among the people of Fellowship Bible Church. May we receive his words with great joy. Treasure the eternal life he brings. Magnify the work he did and continues to do through his Holy Spirit. Trust in his continual intercession and rest in his flawless protection. It would be a very John 17-esque prayer to glorify the Son through these things. Or how about this? Example number two. A John 17 prayer of protection for the people of Fellowship Bible Church. Father, you who have known us from eternity past, protect us from the evil one who so easily leads us astray. We recognize that resistance to your word and dissension in our ranks are great sins that demand our constant attention. May our adherence to your word match that of Jesus, who followed your will to death on the cross. May our unity reflect the harmony shared by the triune God. May the joy we share ward off petty grievances and suspicious accusations. Or number three, a prayer of ultimate perspective from John 17. Father Christ came into the world to give us eternal life. He performed your word, or your work rather, spoke your word, and endured the chastisement we deserved. He now awaits the glory you have destined for him. May our lives take the shape of this eternal perspective. May our dads labor for your glory in the workplace. May our moms raise children to be arrows in your hand. Deliver us from selfish hedonism. 
Grant us the focus to glorify you in all things among the people of this world. Those are my three attempts at praying John 17 types of prayers for our people over the next month. I just thought of this. If over the next month you craft your own prayers and pray them for our people, I would love to see them. Email them to me. And I would love to read those and know what you're praying in a John 17 way for our people. Children, you've been wonderful today. Good job. You paid good attention. Lord bless you. Let's pray, and then we'll have our closing hymn. Father, thank you so much for giving us the insight of this passage, for letting us see a little window into how the Son speaks to the Father. Father, glorify your Son through us as we hear your word, as we heed it, and we glorify the Son with our unity and harmony and fill us with the joy of the Son as he sought your will. Father, magnify yourself among us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.